Father in heaven, we ask you to humble us this morning to receive your word, that you would take the truth of your word and plant it deep within us, and we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd bring fruit in our lives this morning. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word and ask that you'd help me to faithfully preach your word, to joyfully preach your word, that your son Jesus would be exalted. In his name we pray, amen. Well, please don't view theology the way that I viewed trigonometry as a 10th grade high school student. So I went to high school just down the street at East Mecklenburg High School. In 10th grade, I was required to take Algebra two, trigonometry. I did not like math back then. I don't like math today. And uh, like some of you, maybe you can relate to this. In my 10th grade mind, I wonder, why am I taking this class? It was difficult. It required a lot of studying. I put a lot of effort into it. I didn't like math. I'm thankful for those of you who do. I'm thankful for our engineers. I'm thankful that you were trained in that, but I didn't like it. And I thought to myself, why am I taking this? I'm never going to use this in real life. And maybe that turned out to be true because I'm a pastor. No, that's not true for everyone. But that's not the way we're to think about theology. And sometimes I fear that as Christians, we may think about theology the way my 10th grade mind thought about trigonometry, thinking, well, theology is good for pastors. It's good for the members of our church that are more intellectual, that really like to read books. Like, that's for them, and, and I'll be okay. Dave, just give me the things that are practically going to help me on Monday morning. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, theology is the study of God. That's what theology is. That's what, what it means. And studying God is the pursuit of every single Christian. It's the pursuit for all of us to, to know God, to know His love, to know the truth of His Word, to give ourselves to that pursuit, whether you've been in the faith for decades or whether you were just recently baptized into the membership of this church. Young and old, to know the truth of God. Our teenagers, our college students, you give yourselves to studying difficult subjects like trigonometry, which means all of us can handle some difficult subjects like theology and knowing God's Word. You see, only as we understand God can we make sense of life and how it is we are to live. You see, as we know Him, we're compelled to live like Him and to love like Him more. As we grow in our theology, we'll grow in putting our faith into practice. What good is your faith if you don't seek to put it into practice? We're here in Genesis chapter 45. In this story of God's providence, we find Joseph putting his faith into practice. Through these 22 years that he's been separated from his family, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, his faith has been refined. His knowledge of God has been deepened. He's come to understand God's good providence. In the midst of all of his suffering and all of his trials, he's become convinced that God is good. God ultimately is in control. God's hand has been so kind to him, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And that changed the way that he related to his enemies, to his brothers. He was able to extend forgiveness. As you and I take a look at this chapter this morning, chapter 45 of Genesis, may we consider how understanding God's good providence can help us put our faith into practice. And may an understanding of God and His providence lead us away from living in anger, living in bitterness, and resentment towards those 
who've sinned against us. And may we be strengthened as God's people to show forgiveness. Well, the main point of Genesis chapter 45 that I want us to see this morning, if you're taking notes, you can jot down this main point. Understanding God's providence leads to forgiveness, reconciliation, and compassion. Understanding God's providence leads to forgiveness, reconciliation, and compassion. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Uh, The best way to stay engaged in this sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible, and you're welcome to use that copy of the Bible right in front of you in the pew rack. If you take that and turn to page 38, page 38 in that Bible, You'll see Genesis chapter 45 there. We're going to spend our time going through this entire chapter this morning. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. So take it and use it this morning. And take it home with you. Uh, Talk to one of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to connect you with someone here that could even read the Bible with you. A little bit of context of where we've been in the book of Genesis. So in the last chapter, in Genesis 44, we saw that Joseph had one last test for his brothers. In the last chapter, it was a test of, of loyalty. When he framed the youngest brother, Benjamin, to make it look like he had stolen a valuable silver cup from Joseph's home as they departed Egypt, he wanted to see how would the rest of the brothers treat Benjamin? Would they leave him behind as a slave in Egypt, just as they had done with him all those years before? Well, the brothers, they passed that test. They showed themselves to be loyal to Benjamin, treated him with loyal love. We see Judah stepping up, willing to trade his life for the life of his brothers, and that would be the final test. Now, the brothers at this point still did not know that this Egyptian ruler they had been dealing with was their brother Joseph. It's been almost 22 years since they had been with him in the family. They didn't know they were being tested, but now in this chapter, they are in for the surprise of their lives. Joseph reveals his identity. As we consider this passage this morning, we're going to break our main point into three parts. And we're going to consider three ways that God's providence shapes us. Three ways that God's providence shapes us. So we're just going to break that main point down. In verses 1 through 8, we find this first way that God's providence shapes us. The first way, understanding God's providence leads us to forgive. Again, that's theology becoming practical. Understanding God's providence leads us to forgive. That's a faith put into practice. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in point one is these first eight verses. They contain the truth about God's providence and His plan that set the stage for the kindness and the compassion and the reconciliation we'll see in the rest of the chapter. Well, as chapter 45 begins, we see, again, the time of testing. It was over. Now, remember that Joseph's tests were to see if his brothers had changed in the 22 years since he had been with them. What kind of men had they become? Now, before Joseph would bring them into the land of Egypt and save them from famine, he needed to know what kind of men had they become. He needed to know, had they changed? And through these tests, he had heard and he had seen what he needed to. He heard them admit their guilt for their sin. He saw how they showed 
love. They showed loyal love to the brother Benjamin. He had seen in the life of Judah, in particular, this change was evident. The very brother whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery was willing to sacrifice his own life to be a substitute in the place of Benjamin to free him. We see his transformation from a a selfish opportunist to one who showed loyal love and to be one who was self-sacrificing. What Joseph had seen in his brothers, it appeared to be change, repentance. Joseph saw what he needed to see, and the testing was over. And so with no need for any more tests, Joseph, he breaks down with emotion. He had been holding this in all this time. So back in chapter 42, you may have thought at first, wow, he is treating his brothers so harshly. He's speaking roughly to them. He threw Simeon in prison. Why so harsh? Is he out to take vengeance? Well, no, we saw twice that he was having a difficult time keeping his true feelings in. Twice, he stepped in private to weep. But here he doesn't remain in private and weep. He clears the room and he weeps right there in front of them. He doesn't try to weep quietly. You know, sometimes you weep and you try to keep it in. He just lets the emotion out. He was weeping so loudly, those outside of the room, Pharaoh and the other Egyptians, they heard his weeping. And this section here, it is the climax of the Joseph story. God's plan for the people of Israel and the greater story. We've been tracking on the kind of the the lower story of the life of Joseph, what was happening in human events. But the greater story, what God was doing in all of this becomes clear in this chapter. Now, after concealing his identity from his brothers for years, here comes the big reveal. In verse 3, it's almost like, and the masked singer is. Here's Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And immediately he asks about His father, Jacob, is my father still alive? First question, he wants to know, how's dad doing? Is he still alive? But his brothers, put yourselves in their shoes, they can't even answer him. It says here they are dismayed, which means they're terrified. They are paralyzed in fear. Now, you and I just heard Logan read read through all this chapter. So even if it was the first time you've heard this story, we know what happens. But the brothers didn't. Wow, this is Joseph? What is he going to do to us? Is he going to throw us in prison? Is he going to take vengeance on us? Is this our final moment? Is he going to do away with us and take our lives? They're confused. They're terrified. They're in shock. So in verse 4, Joseph tells them to draw near. This isn't to harm them. This isn't to berate them. What he says next is to assure them. He ministers to them. Look at what he says in verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's offering them forgiveness. He's counseling them in the moment. All right, don't, don't be angry at yourselves. Don't be distressed. And what he does here in offering them forgiveness, notice that the speech that follows, the forgiveness He's offering them, it's based upon his theology. It's a forgiveness based upon the providence of God. Three times in verses 5 through 8, he points to God's providence. God is good. God is in control. It's at the heart of his speech. He's shaped by his understanding of God's providence. And his faith is put into practice in how he treats 
his enemies, his brothers who had conspired to kill him and had sold him off into slavery in Egypt. The first time there is in verse 5. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I, I love the contrast here between the evil actions of his brothers and his pointing to, to God's sovereign work. Look at the middle of verse 5. You see here that side by side, you sold me here, God sent me here. You sold me here, God sent me here. You did evil, God did what was good. You had an evil will, God had a good plan. His will is good. The second statement, verse 7, continues to build on this. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then finally, a third statement in verse 8, conclusion. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is a beautiful speech that declares God's providence. God is good. God is in control. All things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. What the brothers did, it was evil, it was wrong, it was sinful. Yet God was in control the whole time. And God even used their evil human actions to unfold His good plan of salvation to preserve the lives of the people of Israel. And here, Joseph is highlighting the providence of God. He's highlighting this providence to comfort his brothers. You know, side by side in these verses are, are two important concepts for us to get. And again, this is where our theology is important for us to grow in our understanding of God. There's two concepts here that we need to see that we see really throughout the pages of Scripture that stand side by side. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And sometimes people may feel like we need to make a choice between these two things. Who is in control? Uh, why did this happen? And some people may need to feel like, well, we either need to give credit to God or we need to blame people in this particular situation. But we see in verses like here, verses 5 through 8, these two concepts, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they sit side by side, not as enemies, but as friends. J.I. Packer, we have his book downstairs, The Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He has a, a beautiful explanation about how these two concepts, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're not enemies, they're friends that sit side by side in Scripture. This is one of the places that we see this, is here in verses 5 through 8. Human responsibility, you sold me. God's sovereignty, God sent me. Side by side, both true. The brothers sold him into slavery. That was evil. This was wrong. They are fully responsible for the malicious act that sought to do away with their brother and put an end to him. At the same time, God was ultimately in control. God was at work to preserve a remnant to save the people of Israel from death and famine. God was at work to bring about good. He sovereignly sent Joseph to Egypt to keep alive the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to fulfill his promises to him. So think about God's providence as a delivery system for his faithfulness. God's hand provides all 
that He has promised. Now, when you see this, it may be a little bit uncomfortable. When you see here that Joseph is comforting his brothers with the providence of God, it may be a little uncomfortable. You may wonder, well, is he excusing sin? Is he making light of the brothers' terrible actions? Well, no. Again, their sin was great. Their sin caused great pain in their family. It tore their family apart. It brought pain and sorrow to their father, Jacob. They treated their brother, their younger brother, who they were supposed to protect and provide for and, and love. They treated him with evil. His entire young adult life spent separated from the family and suffering. Let's be clear here that God using evil deeds is not God excusing evil deeds. doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their evil. The, the point here is to highlight that God is sovereign and He will use even the evil of humanity to accomplish His plans. Now, we've seen God bringing good through evil human actions before in the story of Genesis. Back in chapter 27, God used Jacob's evil act of deceiving his father Isaac. He used even that evil act to advance his plan. Remember back in chapter 38, Judah and Tamar, the Lord used a shameful, evil act of Judah to bring about good, with Jesus eventually coming as a descendant of Judah and Tamar. So we've seen this throughout the book of Genesis. And we see this really throughout the pages of the Bible. When you think forward to the New Testament, again, we've discussed this before, another occasion where human deception and evil moved forward God's plan there in the New Testament was when Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. At the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus predicted this betrayal saying, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judah was fully responsible for his evil and betraying Jesus. He lived and walked with Jesus. If anyone could have seen this guy is who he said he is, it was Judas. Yet Judas had a hard, sinful heart opposed to God and to his will that showed itself in rejecting Jesus. It was wrong and evil for him to betray Jesus, yet God used that evil act to bring salvation through Jesus. God used that act, an evil act of betrayal, to deliver Jesus up to suffer and die on the cross to accomplish his plan of redemption. Well, the central lesson of the story of Joseph is that what the brothers had meant for evil, God meant for good. And in God's good providence, Joseph was sent to Egypt to preserve the lives of the people of Israel, to spare them from death and famine. And Joseph, we see here, was convinced that God's will not the brother's will, was the controlling power in his life. The fatherly hand of God, the controlling power that orchestrated events, even using the evil and terrible events in his life, to work for good. And it's that understanding of God's providence that empowers Joseph to extend kindness and forgiveness to his brothers. Now, he's not stuck merely in a, a horizontal view of what happened with his brothers. He has a vertical view. 
an eye to God's plans and purposes. You see, his forgiveness was encouraged by and enabled by his knowledge of God's providential care. I heard someone recently share a story that they went into the doctor's office with back pain and a back problem. This is another pastor friend who shared this story. And he said he went into the doctor's office and the doctor walked in and said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with your back, but she said, I can tell you this, with the type of posture that you have right now, your back's not going to get better. She said his posture was kind of down and, and looking in. She said if you would kind of look up and if you'd look out, that'd probably help your back out quite a bit. His posture was bringing some pain, at least that was part of the problem. And he made this comparison, and I think it fits well with this passage. How often is it that the posture of our souls may be the problem? That we spend too much time looking down and in, even horizontally, focused on wrongs done to us, suffering that we're experienced. And maybe if we looked up, maybe if we looked to God's Word more, Maybe if we had the posture to look around more, we would more clearly see what God is doing and thank Him for that. Christian, I wonder about you. Who are you holding a grudge against? Where is bitterness grabbing hold of your mind and your heart? Are you focused horizontally and not vertically? You know, one of the most powerful illustrations I've seen of this, and I think we often see the most powerful illustrations in the lives of God's people in the local church. And 17 years ago to this month, I saw one of the most powerful illustrations of trusting God's providence in the life of my pastor and his wife. My wife and I were woken up one morning to a phone call. Back then, you didn't have text messages, and 17 years ago, you didn't have text messages social media. We, we woke up to a phone call, some terrible news. Those phone calls you hate to get. And we received the news that our pastor's 16-year-old son had been killed in a head-on collision at the hands of a drunk driver. He was coming home from basketball practice, and someone was driving drunk and crossed the center line. It hit him head-on, and he was dead. And I got up and drove to the hospital, and a lot of our church family was there, and we got to be there with the family and pray with them and, and comfort them. It was a terrible moment, And I went home sad and upset and angry. Angry that somebody got behind the wheel drunk. And that right before Thanksgiving, a family just lost their 16-year-old son. It was a difficult moment. It it went on for months uh, in, in the terms of dealing with the grief of that death, but also the man who had been driving that vehicle being prosecuted and having to go to court. And I wasn't there in the courtroom that day, but there were several I know that were, and they told me that that day in the courtroom was a display of forgiveness that wasn't like anything they had ever seen before. They said the attorneys that were there, the judge, the reporters and media that were covering the case were blown away. I'd never seen anything like this. My pastor and his wife got up and publicly forgave this man and went over and gave him a hug. It blew everyone in the courtroom away. We see my pastor and his wife, they were shaped by a high view of God. Didn't mean they didn't know tremendous pain. If you talk to them today, I think they still ache from that loss 17 years. I don't think that's anything you ever get over. It's something that God will sustain you in. But it was a high view of God, a high view 
of God's sovereignty that enabled them to forgive a man who caused their family so much pain and grief. They were strengthened to extend the forgiveness they had received in Jesus to someone who had sinned greatly against them and their family. Well, what about you, Christian? How might looking to God and trusting that He is sovereign and trusting that He is good and having that kind of posture, how might that actually help bring good fruit in our lives and through us? How might that help us on the basis of God's providence to be willing to forgive our enemies and to do good to people that have wronged us? Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, may our faith in God and His goodness be put into practice in extending forgiveness to others. Let's consider a second way that God's providence shapes us in verses 9 through 20. Understanding God's providence leads us to reconcile. It's a second way that God's providence shapes us. Understanding God's providence leads us to reconcile. We'll go through these last two points more quickly than the first. You see, Joseph trusting God's providence led to forgiveness to the reunion of the whole family. In verses 9 through 15, we see plans for a family reunion. Joseph was in a hurry to get his father, Jacob, the whole family, to Egypt. And notice what he tells his brothers to share with his father there in verses 9 through 13. Let me read verses 9 through 13 for us. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Why is he in such a hurry to get the whole family in Egypt? Well, again, there's still five years of famine left. We we might know again in a couple weeks, we might know if there's an ice storm predicted, what it's like to not be able to buy bread or milk just for a couple days. What about not having food for five days? years. They'd already gone through two years. That's crazy. Five more years of famine. They would end up starved. They would end up in poverty. And this wasn't just any family. This is God's chosen people. A promise given there to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants that God would be with them, that God would bless them and multiply them to become a mighty nation that through the descendants of Jacob, Israel would become a mighty nation, people, descendants to the ends of the earth. So he charges his brothers, telling them about what God has done and making him a ruler in Egypt, and he graciously pledges to provide for the whole family and for all the descendants that would come of Israel. So he's told them God's providence. He's assured them of his forgiveness. Think about this order. Talks about God's providence, and comes forgiveness, and now comes reconciliation in verses 14 and 15. He weeps first with Benjamin, who was his full brother, and then he kisses all of his brothers and weeps upon all of them. Both of those physical expressions of his love and his forgiveness. First came 
forgiveness through looking to God and His providence. And then came reconciliation, being reunited as a family. You see, what forgiveness did in that situation, it got sin out of the way so these two parties could be reconciled, reunited. Forgiveness made reconciliation possible. Forgiveness canceling a debt, a tremendous debt in this situation, got sin out of the way so they could be reconciled. Well, consider, Christian, what God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, what that does in your life vertically. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, He came down to earth to die, to pay for sin. He willingly laid His life down to die on the cross as a substitute in our place to take the penalty for sin of anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. At the moment you repent and believe in Jesus, what happens is that Jesus' payment for sin on the cross, that's applied personally to your life. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't done that yet, then you do not yet know forgiveness. And we would love for you to know that forgiveness today. We would love to talk to you more about what it would look like today to know that you're forgiven of all your sin against God through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, what happens at that moment of conversion, Christian, this is something that we profess in our baptism when we make our profession of faith public, that we've been united to Jesus in death, go under the water, showing that our sins have been forgiven, raised to walk in newness of life, risen to live in ways that honor God. What forgiveness from God does in our life, it gets sin out of the way so that we can be reconciled to God and have new life, a relationship with Him, that we can know Him as our Father, adopted into His family. You see, forgiveness comes first in our life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Then comes reconciliation. Then comes adoption into God's family. And all we know is union with Christ. Compassion that comes from Him. And that's where we find our joy, Christian, in being united to God. He is the greatest gift of the gospel. His presence is the greatest blessing that we can know now and forevermore. Christian, how often do you meditate on this truth? This truth of being united to God. Think about how that would make a difference in how you view suffering. Think about how that would make a difference in how you view temptation in your life. You're united to God. You've been made one with Him. How then could we continue on living in sin? Think about what that would do to help us increase in joy. To be reminded of the truth that we've been reconciled to God. It's all by grace. Nothing can change that or do away with that. Meditate on that truth this week, Christian. That God's been so good to get, forgiven, to get sin out of the way and forgiven you of your sins so that you can live your life reconciled to Him. Well, the reconciliation, it's begun. But getting Jacob to move the family to Egypt, it was not going to be an easy sell. Not something he would have probably wanted to do old in age. Would he believe his sons when they'd come to tell him all of this news? It wasn't going to be an easy sell. And so we see in verses 16 through 20, one way I think God helped and provided in this situation is that we see Pharaoh. 
a pagan there in Egypt. He jumps in on the situation and he provides support, telling Joseph to let his brothers know he would give them the best of the land there in Egypt. He gave them wagons to bring their families back to Egypt, providing for them and promising them land where they would have all that they need. And so the stage was set for this family to be reunited. Let's consider a third and final way that God's providence shapes us here at the end of this passage in verses 21 through 28. Understanding God's providence leads us to show compassion. It's in verses 21 through 28. Understanding God's providence leads us to show compassion. First came forgiveness, then reconciliation, and now we see kindness and compassion. Joseph lavishing gifts on his brothers, and he's exceptionally generous with his youngest brother, his full brother, Benjamin. Along with the wagons and provisions for the journey, we see in verse 22 that he gave them all a change of clothes, which many believe that this is a sign of reconciliation, new clothes to put on. Yet to Benjamin, he gave a large amount of silver and five changes of clothes. These gestures of reconciliation, they show here we're we're reunited, and now we are in a relationship where you're going to know compassion and provision, and Joseph richly provides for their needs. Now, his focus was to get his father and the entire family to Egypt, and therefore he provided all that was needed to make that happen. The motivation for all of this compassion, for all this kindness towards those who had wronged him was that he saw the events of his life, again, on a vertical scale. To see things the way that God saw them, God was showing compassion to the people of Israel, delivering them from famine. That was God's plan, and he was using Joseph to accomplish that plan. Here, Joseph was acting like God. That's what it means to be godly, to act like God, to love the way that he loves. And here he is showing compassion. Now, Joseph sent his brothers away with a parting command. Somebody told me this week in family devotions, they sent their kids away from family devotions with this parting command in verse 24. Do not quarrel on the way. They kind of needed it, right? Joseph needed to tell his brothers, don't quarrel. I mean, if they were going to have a long trip back, there would have been opportunities. Hey, we got to go tell dad what happens. He's in for the surprise of his life. Joseph's still alive. Who's going to get blamed for this? Who's gonna... There was plenty of opportunities to quarrel along the way. This wasn't going to be easy news for them to pass on to their father. He thought Joseph was dead. 22 years had passed. Well, verse 26, we see here, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And look at the response. His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But then the brothers tell him all the words of Joseph These words, they're recounting God's providence. Everything they heard in verses 5 through 8, you can imagine they pass on. Here's what God's doing. God has a plan to save our family. We did what was wrong. God was at work the whole time to bring about good. He's delivering us from this famine. Our lives will be spared. Our burden lifted off from us. Look at what God is doing. As Jacob hears about how God made Joseph Lord of all Egypt, And then he sees with his own eyes these wagons that came from Egypt and these gifts. Look at the response at the end of verse 27. The spirit of their father Jacob 
revived. That's what good news does. It revives the soul. Verse 28, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I read this week someone compared this to a resurrection event. It's almost like Jacob was dead in his sorrow and in his grief. And with this good news, Jacob, it's like he comes back to life. He's ready to travel to Egypt to see Joseph, which means the family will survive the famine. You see, God's providence lines up with His faithfulness to His promise. God's control over all the events in the life of Joseph, it demonstrates His faithfulness to His promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that they would become a multitude of nations. And consider how Joseph's faith was refined through all those years of suffering, years of pain, hardship, trial, wrongly spent time in prison, falsely accused of something he didn't do. God was at work the whole time. And it was through his suffering that his knowledge of God and his perspective of God's presence has grown. He's able to interpret things horizontally in light of what is true vertically about God and His good providence. He's grown in His faith to see that all that's happened in His life came not by chance, but from the fatherly hand of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we experience suffering this side of glory, far too often we find ourselves struggling to try to make sense of the trials that we face. We may not, we're not promised to get the type of clarity that Joseph had. Again, this was a promise that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to their family to make them into a great nation. We're not promised or given the expectation that we'll be able to make sense of all of our suffering or pain this side of glory. There's often going to be things we struggle to understand. Why did God let this happen? Why now, God? Why has this come upon me? And we shouldn't have the expectation, our hope is not in our own cognitive ability to try to make sense of things. Our hope is in a good and sovereign God. What we can always know, He's good, He's in control. He only works for the good of those who love Him. When we wrestle with understanding what God is doing, It's in those moments, by God's grace, that we can exercise our faith. We can put our faith into practice. Let me tell you what that looks like, because that sounds sometimes real flowery. What does it mean to walk by faith? I need something more than that. Well, I think at least one way that we exercise our faith is by trusting that God is sovereign. You can say that to God in prayer. God, God, I trust that you're sovereign. Help me to believe that more. Help me to trust that truth more, to put my trust in you. Help me to trust that, that your plans alone are good. That's another thing you can pray. God, help me to trust your plans are good. You only do good to your people. And that kind of faith, it will change us. It may take time. It may take time for it to change us, but it will. It changed Joseph. That kind of faith produces a Christian that's willing to extend forgiveness to show kindness, 
to pursue reconciliation with people who have wronged us. That kind of faith, it can encourage us that though we may not ever understand our pain and our trials, God loves us and He cares for us. Brother and sister, that's why it's important for us to grow in our theology, to grow in our study of God, that as we grow in our knowledge of God, that we would grow to look more like Him and to love more like Him. And as we consider God's providence, may we be reminded nothing can stop His plans. Nothing can get in the way of His plans. Our sin does not get in the way of God's plan. No human evil action gets in the way of God's plan. He uses even the evil actions of people to accomplish His plans. We see that, and we've seen it in the story of Joseph, and we see that in the story of Jesus. God sent Jesus down to earth, the greatest gift the world could ever know. Jesus, fully God, fully man, God in flesh, coming down to earth to deliver and to save, to reconcile sinful people to the God that you and I have sinned against, the greatest gift, what Israel was waiting for all those years, a promise made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Yet when Jesus came, He was rejected. He was despised by many. He was mocked. And ultimately, He was killed, executed on a cross, treated as a public criminal, given a public execution. Who was responsible, though, for the death of Jesus? Was it Judas Iscariot? What he did was wrong. Just read the verse earlier, woe to that man. Was it Pontius Pilate? He said the blood's on them. He had the power to do something different. Was it on the crowds yelling out, crucify him, demanding Jesus, and letting Barabbas go free? Was it on the Roman soldiers who carried it out? As we see so many human people that played a part in the death of Jesus. They were wrong. They were all, they're all responsible. Yet it was not ultimately their will that was in control of the death of Jesus on the cross. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to this. I love this. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, side by side in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They did what was evil. Jesus killed by the hands of lawless men. Yet Jesus was ultimately delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And therefore, Jesus came and willingly laid down His life to die. You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God brought the greatest good the world has ever seen. What we needed most, someone to pay for our sin, the debt that we owed God. We see at the cross, the greatest good the world has ever seen, it came out of the most horrific evil, spitting upon the Son of God, torturing Him and ultimately executing Him. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 he captures how God brought the ultimate good in Jesus delivered through the acts of sinful people. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God sovereignly delivered Jesus to die and pay for our sins. In God's sovereignty, He rose Jesus, He raised Jesus from the dead that we might be forgiven, reconciled to God, receive new life, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the moment of faith and repentance, and have life in His presence now and forevermore. You see, God, He brings about good even through the actions of human people. May we look to Jesus. And as we consider this story of Joseph, may we be strengthened to trust God more. Christian, I leave you with this question. How might understanding God's providence more this week change your perspective? How might it change your call to obedience? How might that posture change you to be more joyful, to be more obedient to God's Word, to worship Him more? May we look to Christ. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word that calls us to look up and to look out, that calls us to look vertically and not to remain looking down or horizontally, that calls us to consider your goodness, your greatness, your glory, your love through your son Jesus. Lord, may we be changed and shaped and transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. Lord, we pray as a church that you would help us to look to you and to your providence or help us to to be changed, that we would be those who would be patient in adversity and those who would be thankful in prosperity. Lord, we ask you to work in us this morning for your glory, for our good and our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.